right, thank you all again. Um, it's been a long but invigorating day, and we're again so grateful for all of you uh, online and also obviously for our, for our wonderful panelists. So thank you all. This is a, again a really critical area of humanitarian action, natural disaster, and again all of these, I just want to highlight the fact that none of these um, panels, and I think it's been clear when people have spoken, it's not as though these are isolated ways to think about humanitarian action. They all intersect, but our entry point is um, the focus for each one, and the entry point for this is, is natural disaster, and we're focusing on Cyclone Nargis in uh, Myanmar. So we have, again, another incredibly distinguished panel of speakers, um, and again, we're gonna go in the order that people are seated, which makes life a little easier, and I will be my obnoxious self again with a two-minute warning and a zero-minute warning, um, but we're gonna begin with um, uh, Susie Hayward to my left, who will uh, begin speaking, then Tara Gingrich, and then Nabayuki Asai, and then Vinya Ariatne. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. So thank you. And let's turn it right over to you. And thank you to you, Diane, and to everybody else who has spoken already last night and this morning. I've, been, I've learned a lot, and I've been very inspired listening to all of you. So I was tapped by my colleagues here on the panel without my knowledge to start us out today. Um, and the, the reason why is that um, they wanted me to give some of the context to the situation in Myanmar and to what happened with Nargis. So I'm going to start with a little bit of that data dump and then I'll, and then I'll make some of my points that are more analytical in nature about um, the relationship between religion and the response in, in, to Cyclone Nargis in Myanmar. So the, the cyclone hit on May 2nd, 2008. There was some warning that it was coming. Um, but there was not nearly enough preparation or understanding of just how terrible this disaster was going to be. It is the worst disaster, to, natural disaster, to hit Myanmar in its recorded history. There were some 140,000 people who died as a result of it. Entire villages in the Delta region disappeared in one day as a result of the, the cyclone. There were many homes that were destroyed. Many people living in the Delta region lost family members, lost people close to them as, as a result of it. Um, there were two to three million people overall who were affected by the cyclone. Um, even up from the Delta in places like Yangon, electricity was out. It was hard to get water for, for several days after the cyclone hit. Now this is in a country, remember, that had already experienced quite a bit of disaster um, of a more man-made nature. Since 1962, there had been a military regime running the country that had um, operated in a very oppressive and draconian way, often failing to um, respond to the needs of the community and uh, respect human rights. In, in this um, oppressive situation, there were many um, ethnic groups. There's, Myanmar actually has 135 ethnic groups that are recognized by the state, so it's an incredibly diverse nation, but the majority are the, the Bamar, and they had um, near exclusive control over the, the military that ran the country. So there were many ethnic insurgency groups that arose and began to um, fight against the government for autonomy over the states and the areas that are generally in the outer lying areas within the country. 
Um, so civil war had been experienced for decades within Myanmar and had resulted in a lot of um, loss of life and a lot of um, challenges to infrastructure and service delivery throughout the country, much less poverty. Uh, the country is 90% Buddhist, Theravada Buddhist, 6% Christian, 4% Islam. These are all, you need to take all of these numbers with a grain of salt because it's very, it has been very difficult to get accurate population data. And there's still, this is, these numbers are from the most recent census that was done in Myanmar, but even these numbers, there's some skepticism about the degree to which they are, um, they adequately represent the representation of religious minorities in particular. In addition to Buddhist Christianity and Islam, there's also small groups like uh, Hindus and Baha'i and some people who continue to practice exclusively the indigenous tradition, not worship. Plenty of the ethnic minorities, the non-Bamar in the country practice Buddhism as well, but uh, the religious minorities tend also to be ethnic minorities or from nationalities other than Bamar. So, uh, so there's this conflation of, of ethnicity and religion that is non-Bamar, non-Buddhist, being seen as a threat to the state as a result of some of these um, civil wars that have existed over, over decades. And oftentimes the government and the military in its treatment of ethnic minorities have also restricted um, religious practices religious freedom, the creation of um, religious institutions and free worship um, and giving equal opportunity to those who are non-Buddhist um, or non-Bamar to serve within the government and the military. In the midst of um, the long period of military control and rule of the country, the religious institutions and, and actors and organizations played an incredibly important role, especially in terms of, to, to use some of the frames we're using in terms of development and humanitarian assistance to communities. So in the absence of the, the military regime providing um, what was needed adequately for um, health, for adequate education and so on. It was a lot of the religious communities that stepped up and provided health clinics, that provided alternative forms of education that was freely accessible to, to people in um, rural areas that, that might not have been able to afford to, to attend some of the government schools. Um, but a lot of this religious support that was given to communities was done purely on an intra-faith level. So it was Buddhist communities providing these kinds of um, schools and, and health clinics and so on within their own Buddhist community and Christian communities. This was um, as a result of some of the social political setting and the conflict and, and geographic divisions. Um, but this was also in part because the under the military regime, the um, inter-ethnic or inter-religious collaboration was seen as a threat. And so it was, um, to the extent to which it was happening, it was, it was monitored and it was, um, it was seen as kind of risky behavior to engage in. Um, Nargis represented something of a change in that respect. Nargis became, for a lot of people in the interfaith movement, they look at Nargis as the, the, the time, at a moment at which interfaith collaboration um, really began to take root 
because it was a matter of pragmatism. And I'm gonna come back to this a little bit, but I just, I, I wanna put that out there even from the beginning. Um, in 2011, there began to be a political shift in um, Myanmar from a military-led government to um, civilian government that then has led to further political and economic and social changes. And um, since 20, 20, 2011 and the opening up of the country, there has been um, new forms of conflict that have arisen um, or new expressions of conflicts that existed previously, including in particular conflicts between Buddhist and Muslim communities. There's been um, new movements of Buddhist nationalism and, and Buddhist activism that have taken something of an anti-Islamic flair within it. And then there's also been the continued skirmishes, um, civil war in some parts of the country at the same time that there has been an effort to um, move forward with a peace process or a political dialogue that brings some 18 to 20, depending on how you count it, ethnic armed groups to the table with the government in order to negotiate a deal. So that's the broad context. Now, um, there's a few points that I want to make about, about Cyclone Nargis and about the response to it. One is um, religion is resilience. So in the midst of this utter distraction that happened in, in the Delta region, um, some of the only buildings that, left, that were left standing were often the religious places of worship. So you could look across an area and there would be villages destroyed, homes destroyed and so on, but the, the, the Buddhist monastery or pagoda or the church building were often the ones that had the strongest foundation and so they were the ones that were remaining. Um, and as I began this exercise of thinking of, about religion and Cyclone Nargis, I, I kind of came back to that imagery and about what that would mean for communities. That, I mean, during the, conf during the during when, this Narg when Nargis hit, many of them went into these religious spaces in order to have safe, safe, safe sanctuary. But also in the aftermath of that, looking out at the destruction, the destruction in the patties, in the agricultural um, areas and so on, and seeing what was only remaining standing as those religious places. As a result of that, the, the religious places of worship often became the place where um, the response was organized out of. And, um, and so people were taking refuge in it, but that was also where, um, you know, when they were able to collect some of the rice and dry it out, that was where it became distributed from. Um, from across the country, the donations that were coming in were organized through the religious spaces and so on. But it, it you know, I think as well about what does that mean that in these spaces, in these monasteries and churches with the, the imagery, the iconography, the meaning that is imbued within that space in the midst of this destruction, that's where the organizing is coming out of and how did that impact or affect how the organizing was done or how people responded to it. Um, I also, so religion is a resilience in the sense of that's kind of what was left standing and that's part of the longer history in Myanmar of religion as resilience and being able to provide to the needs of the community in the absence of the state doing it or in state presence. But also faith is resilience too because a lot of people um, have spoken about how after Cyclone Nargis, the, the fact that the religious buildings were still standing, the fact that their religious um, actors, in many cases, their religious leaders were able to kind of stand up and lead the communities forward and respond to those needs also helped ensure that um, they were able to muster some of the internal strength 
in order to move forward and address the situation. Um, the second thing, and I know Tara's gonna get into this a little bit more, so I'll only speak about it um, briefly, but conflict dynamics and sensitivity. So again, the Cyclone Nargis was generally a positive story, especially in the immediate aftermath in terms of being transformative of some of the conflict divides and bringing communities together. Buddhist and Christian, which are the, the predominantly what, you're, what you'll find in the Delta region, came together um, as a matter of pragmatism because they needed to, because you know, the destruction was so huge and um, the needs were so immediate that, that the, these communities came together also as a way to funnel some of the resources that were coming in from elsewhere in the country and from the broader region, Buddhist and Christian communities work together um, in, order to, in order to get that money down to the Delta region and the needs there. Um, government, civil society, partnerships as well were transformed by some of the, the response to Cyclone Nargis. Um, government, you know, there, there was a lot of international criticism of the military not doing enough, um, but they did do some, and Cyclone Nargis actually created some of the first opportunities for civil society and the government to be working together on community needs that um, were transformative. Um, there were post, there are post-colonial dynamics. These are, these are immediate conflict sensitivities and dynamics um, that were going on. Um, and, and that there's a positive story for. There is more subtle post-colonial conflict um, narratives and dynamics and sensitivities that played into some of the response in um, sometimes more negative ways, especially as time progressed. And one that I want to highlight now, but I'm hoping Vinya will also speak to a little bit from the Sri Lanka context, is that um, oftentimes um, the, the faith-based organizations that, that do come in from the international system, um, which happened after some time in Cyclone Nargis when they were able to get access there, the ones that um, come from a faith perspective are often Christian, and a lot of the donations that are coming in internationally are coming from um, Christian organizations or networks or countries that are associated with Christian majorities. And so, um, that, that can, in a setting like Myanmar that is post-colonial, where there was Christian missionary work that was being done, where there are conflict dynamics between um, when ethnic minorities who are Christian, there, there's an association then of Christianity as being somehow outside of or opposed to the state. When um, the faith-based organizations that are coming in or some of the money that's coming in is primarily coming from Christian origins, that can also feed into some of the sensitivities or anxieties of the Buddhist community in um, Myanmar or in Sri Lanka or elsewhere that outside of where we are, the great, the great power, the great influence, the great money is coming from not our community, the Buddhist community, but from other communities. Um, I'll stop there. <laughs> so I'm being told to. Hi, uh, so I will start with a disclaimer, being trained as a lawyer, I always start with the small print, um, so I'm not an expert on Myanmar or Cyclone Nargis, but I have spent a lot of time in the last several years researching and thinking about um, local humanitarian leadership and capacity of local actors, and more recently, um, thanks to Diane, uh, the nexus of local humanitarian leadership, religion, um, and effective humanitarian assistance. So that will be the, the basis of my remarks. 
Um, specifically, I'll, I just want to talk about the role of local actors, particularly local faith actors and, and local humanitarian leadership that we saw in the response to Cyclone Nargis, and a little bit about Oxfam's work with local faith actors. Uh, and just to start with, I think it's, the response is a, it's a really interesting example of, of local humanitarian leadership. Um, when, which we often, often hear works only in natural disaster settings and um, while, while we are talking about uh, the cyclone and the context as a natural disaster, as, as Susie said, there are also a, a lot of elements of conflict and, and inequality and, and um, uh, inequality yeah, of resources and treatment among different communities. So I think it's also a complex uh, setting to look at local leadership and, and how local actors can step in in a crisis to play a big role in the response. Uh, so um, I, as, as Susie hinted to, I think because of a combination of a few factors, um, a small, very small INGO presence uh, on the ground in Myanmar before the cyclone um, because of government restrictions on civil society, then government restrictions on international actors entering right after the cyclone, and a slow response by the government, um, those three things really created an opportunity for local civil society, um, and even more than that, um, community-based organizations, including um, faith, faith organizations. And um, as, as we've been talking about the past two days, I think we can all um, agree and, and would know that those local faith actors would have responded anyway, and all local actors, that they are they're always the first responders, that they're, they're always jumping in to help neighbors. Um, but this vacuum that was created because of the, the few international actors and, and the delay of the government in, in getting organized and, and being able to provide aid um, really um, provided an opportunity and pressure on, on local actors to, to step in and maybe take on both the nature and, and scale of work that they might not have done otherwise. So um, I, in, in looking at, um, at the resources in particular that, that um, were identified for this case study, um, that I found really interesting, the Tier Fund Evaluation, um, which is a, a faith-based organization of their work, um, and also the um, document listening to voices from, from the inside. So um, from those and, and some other resources, I think um, indicated that there were strengths and challenges about the engagement of local faith actors in the response. And um, they, the benefits include um, that local faith actors did provide spiritual as well as the material needs of those people were affected, this people-centered people response, that, an approach that we've been talking about. And a quote, an illustrative a quote was, um, from a local faith actor. Our organization has no sectoral limits like INGOs. These are our communities and we feel responsible for all of their needs. NGOs work on sector and technical capacity like medical care, et cetera. We had to take care of all needs simultaneously. Uh, secondly, um, another benefit of, of the engagement of local faith actors um, was, as Susie said, um, the use of, of monasteries and also monks um, to that the, they were they were prime actors in delivering that aid, um, including to um, 
including yeah, faith actors and non-Buddhist non uh, actors also were able to use monasteries and work with monks to, to deliver aid. And a quote on that note is um, from a Christian um, local group. We worked through the monks and the monasteries to deliver aid. We did so because Buddhist monasteries are very influential in every place. Our base was always the monastery and we communicated through them. They recognize that we worked on an interfaith basis and our staff are from a diversity of faiths. And the third benefit that I saw, I've seen, and, um, is that, the, that as, as Susie said, that the faith actors of different faiths came together, which was new in, in the context in Myanmar. And uh, a quote, before and after Nargis, our main work is the translation of scriptures for all people in all national languages. We provide relief, however, because there is a need. Through Nargis, we realize the need to work in a holistic way with other organizations. We now have increased our external recognition, although we have always done social work. Uh, I did do want to highlight two challenges, I think, that came with the um, large role of local faith actors in the response. One is, the, is their capacity, both, both technical and um, kind of softer capacity around their institution, uh, yeah, I guess institutional structures, but through a very Western lens of whether they have the ability to write reports and keep uh, and, and maintain financial systems that, that, that we um, expect. Um, and so, uh, because most of these organizations were involved in, in, in social service delivery before, but were not, probably would not have described themselves as humanitarian actors. Uh, so there are two quotes I thought were interesting in this regard. One is, the limits of our organization are our knowledge and the scale upon which we have to work. We also have a lack of funds, human resources, and our communities are not trained for this kind of work. A final limitation is the mistrust that exists between different religious and ethnic groups. Uh, and then, uh, we are used to our area of um, evangelism, so relief is totally a new area to us. And then, um, as I don't think that we've really talked about today, but came up quite a bit yesterday, is the idea of impartiality, which um, is one of the primary uh, humanitarian principles, along with humanity, independence, and neutrality. And it's the idea that humanitarian assistance should be delivered uh, based on need alone and not, um, not with respect to religion, political affiliation, ethnicity. So um, I think that, you know, that, that gets interesting and complicated when we're talking about local faith actors. And both uh, the tier fund evaluation raised that as, as a concern with partners that they had. Um, and um, and this li listening to voices from the inside also provided a, a quote um, from a Christian group. We, we, set out, we set about gathering resources for specially affected areas, but we provided them only to Christians. We didn't want to be accused of trying to convert people or exploiting the situation, but people wanted assistance, which is actually a really twisted result of, I guess, concerns around impartiality um, and concerns about proselytization. Uh, so, um, and then from the, the Tier Fund experience, so um, Tier Fund is a faith-based organization and, and one that's very committed to local humanitarian leadership and, and capacity building of local actors. And um, in the evaluation, they described the fact that they didn't have uh, ready partners on the ground with which they had um, existing relationships and so they had to pick new ones, including churches. And 
um, that that was a very um, a productive relationship, new partnerships in some ways. They felt like they, their quality standards were met, but there were a lot of challenges. Um, and I, I found it interesting that, um, that these were Christian churches and, and there was still a lot of, of, of challenges between the organizational culture. Um, so they said um, that there were distinct challenges uh, faced in working with them in contrast to working with an INGO and, and the, the different organizational culture. And, um, and then they also really had to address differences in capacity and said the importance of investing time and money in building the capacity of local churches um, is, yeah, is in building the capacity of local churches through their structures. This is because that investment will have a long-term impact since it builds on existing structures, namely the local church. These churches will remain and will continue to have ongoing links with their conventions for further input and training. Which I think captures kind of the some of the challenges, but also the opportunities of of partnering with with local um, inst religious institutions and actors. Um, and uh, so Oxfam, real briefly, in, in the response to Cyclone Nargis, we did work. Um, we were um, responding um, and providing um, assistance. We worked with partners um, right away, and then and then for the for the first year. Um, providing food security, water and sanitation, emergency shelter, and then helping um, communities to recover their livelihoods. But we didn't partner, none of the partners were faith-based, and um, I tried to ask our, our office in Myanmar about why that was, and then I couldn't really, uh, there wasn't the kind of institutional knowledge uh, or memory. But, but since then, we have um, begun partnering with some local faith actors, um, and in particular, a network called the Joint Strategy Team, um, which includes um, Baptist groups and, and a number of groups of different um, religious faiths. And um, from talking with our staff there, they, they mentioned a number of the, the same issues of the, the benefits of, of access and, and trust among the communities that, that comes with working with a local faith actor, but also concerns around accountability to beneficiaries and gender um, issues that when they've tried to um, suggest working on gender norms um, with, with partners that they've received kind of a, a pushback that it's, um, these issues are part of the culture and, and that Oxfam should mind our own business. Um, so um, I, think that it's, I think that it's very interesting. I think that the tier fund experience is, there's a lot to learn from both the benefits and the challenges uh, for faith-based and secular international organizations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Nobuyuki Asai from Sogaka International, uh, uh, SGI. It's a uh, worldwide lay Buddhist network and it's a contemporary uh, movement uh, starting from Japan. And uh, I. I myself don't have much knowledge about the psychonargis uh, either. So, uh, but uh, meanwhile, I have some experiences regarding uh, disaster uh, response activity. So I'd like to refer to the resources and also share uh, experiences in Japan, including ourselves. And in particular, I'd like to highlight the importance of internal aspect of strengths, uh, just uh, Susan mentioned such as hope or compassion or encouragement. 
Yeah, and, and how those uh, things affect the hu uh, local humanitarian leadership, because uh, it's closely related to Buddhism teachings. And for your information, uh, in East Asia, uh, the Buddhist tradition uh, is slightly different from that of South Asia. Yeah, in uh, East Asia, the Mahayana Buddhism is prevailing. Yeah, but uh, in common, I believe, the Buddhism expounds the dignity of life and in the connectedness of all beings and all phenomena in the world. And based on such teachings, uh, many uh, Buddhism organizations or local communities or uh, actors, including priests, uh, promote social activities, including disaster response activity. Uh, among the psychoanalogous resources, the Tia Fund report reads, the church knew where its people were and was in a position to assist immediately. It's a Christianity group's experience, but it applies to Japanese Buddhist uh, groups as well. They often provide uh, their facilities as shelters, and local leaders and individuals, no matter if they may have knowledge or skills, voluntarily gather and run shelters or give a hand to neighbors, regardless of their faith. Unfortunately, it's not a statistical uh, data, but some researchers in Japan admit that uh, the, the shelters provided by religious organizations, uh, the atmosphere of those shelters were much more uh, positive uh, if compared to other shelters in general. One reason would be cross relationship among the people, and another would be their uh, willingness to help others. And at the recovery phase, meanwhile, a couple of the analogous resources mentioned that faith-based organizations promote psychosocial aid utilizing their religious resources. As you know, Buddhism teachings expound getting rid of sufferings of people. In this sense, uh, providing uh, relief supplies is not sufficient. The, so as a natural step, the mental issue is often a concern for Buddhist actors. And the concern uh, ranges to all the people in the community, including non-Buddhists uh, as well. Then what I'd like to point out here is that mental care or encouragement would work quite effectively if it's provided through a visible and trustworthy channel. Encouragement can be delivered through various channels. In Japan, after the 2011 earthquake and tsunami, many affected people say that Numerous encouragement words were brought about uh, through mass media or from tem temporary visitors such as politicians, but they were superficial and didn't make a lot of sense. On the other hand, I witnessed a case where encouragement through a visible channel inspired a different type of behavior. Uh, could you show the photo? Uh, so one month after the tsunami, a local leader of our network in Ishinomaki City, one of the most stricken areas, elected a signboard saying uh, in Japanese, Ganbaro Ishinomaki, or English, uh, keep on going Ishinomaki, uh, together with his friends. This phrase is quite simple, and many people staying outside were refraining from using this phrase because it could sound superficial. The venue was exactly where he had lived and owned his own company. They were comple completely swept away by the tsunami. And he himself was very much depressed, but encouraged by, uh, through religious teachings. 
and he attempted to encourage the whole local community because every, everybody was uh, still depressed. He had some hesitation to elect it because uh, it might be too early to do such a thing. When it was complete, however, most of local residents knew who elected it and understood his feeling. He was greatly appreciated by local residents and later, this board itself became a symbol of the whole city's reconstruction. In this case, religion mattered only with his motivation to take action, but if an encouragement itself is based on religious teachings, I think the effect turns greater. Uh, please turn it off. <laughs> Personal and mutual encouragement based on religious uh, teachings would be often conducted in emergency. In addition, in the Nargis resource, a religious leader's experience of providing scriptures is mentioned. In our case, we have a daily organ newspaper and it continues to carry encouragement messages in such occasions. In the opening remarks of this conversation event, Diane states that religion evolves and change. I agree with it. Yeah, in particular, in emergency, the paper highlights different aspects of the teachings and releases appropriate messages depending on the situations. At the 2011 earthquake, we managed to deliver the paper to our shelters. It was very exceptional uh, due to difficulties in shipment. And five, five days later after the tsunami, our president Taisaku Ikeda shared Mahayana Buddhism teaching in the paper and claimed that the treasures of the heart were unbreakable. Those messages were forwarded through texting to other members who couldn't receive the paper. The affected people became convinced that they could overcome the tragedy. They received a lot of aid through various channels during emergency, uh, of course, including relief supplies and so on. But when they look back now, many of them raised this experience. And for your information, for your information, the paper provided uh, was provided basically only to our, our own members. But in reality, people were uh, starving for information, so uh, even the non-members were also uh, very much curious about this paper and read it. Also, they gradually moved their own attitude from being supported to supporting others, and indeed started to take action. I suppose uniqueness of local religious communities lies here. Leadership is not limited to one or two persons in a community. A number of ordinary people excited leadership with their own capacity and collaborated with each other. Meanwhile, trust cannot exist without daily commitment. We SGI, on a daily basis, hold gatherings at members' homes and local leaders conduct home visits to individual members in order to give encouragement or religious guidance. Such activities help form a trustworthy channel among the members and local leaders encourage numerous local other members. So I agree that professional skills on relief activity or uh, shelter running or psychosocial care uh, is absolutely beneficial for religious communities or actors as well. In the meantime, encouragement and specific services uh, originated from religion indeed help extract affected people's power from within and leadership functions more effectively and dynamically. I hope this aspect got get more attention uh, in relevant discussions in the future. Yeah, that's all. Thank you. Thank you.
thank you. Um, I am uh, Vinaya Ariratna. I come from Sri Lanka, and I represent the Sarvodesh Ramadana movement, which is a grassroots movement inspired by Buddhist and Gandhian thinking, working in community development, uh, peace building, and uh, reconciliation in Sri Lanka. And we have also been quite extensively involved in humanitarian work, both uh, in times of uh, natural disasters as well as during the conflict. Uh, I have not been also directly involved in uh, uh, relief or uh, recovery work in relation to uh, Myanmar disaster, but uh, uh, there are very important lessons that uh, we can learn from uh, the Nagi's uh, disaster response and also in uh, reference to the tsunami disaster we had. Uh, I think there are uh, few lessons that I would like to share and also critique uh, on the case study that have been uh, uh, used in this uh, uh, symposium. The, the first thing that I would like to say is that uh, uh, it's very interesting when you look at, uh, now we heard uh, uh, case examples from uh, armed conflict situations and then we have natural disasters. But here is a situation where just like in Sri Lanka, which had a 26-year-old uh, conflict, where a man-made disaster or human-induced disaster is compounded by having a natural disaster. The same communities which go through uh, 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 armed conflict are affected by a natural disaster. So it's, it's a double disaster. So how does the community respond to that? Then the uh, next point is, uh, uh, especially both disasters happened in Asia, and both countries are Buddhist countries. Sri Lanka, Buddhist, largely uh, majority Buddhists uh, live in the, those countries, and Myanmar as well. So um, when you have a conflict which involves different communities, uh, there are uh, it may be a, a struggle to uh, uh, win your rights and also human rights are involved. Uh, then how do you negotiate uh, in a post-disaster situation in terms of relief and the recovery? Uh, now in the case of uh, Myanmar, and I have been involved in coordinating some of the relief work through the Asian Disaster Risk Reduction Network, uh, there had been, as uh, Susie said, uh, international isolation. So naturally you don't have the same capacity even for the government to respond to a, a disaster of that, that scale. Now Sri Lanka, even though we had a very good uh, sort of administrative setup uh, to deal with uh, 1 million people being displaced and over 60,000 people being killed within 20 minutes. Uh, I mean, uh, it, you can imagine how difficult it is to respond. So you can, uh, we can imagine a country like Myanmar, which has been uh, isolated due to uh, international isolation, is there due to uh, uh, political reasons and having very limited capacity, how the communities are going to respond. Now, when it comes to the uh, to religion, when you look at the, the Buddhist way of looking at disasters, I, I think it's very important. There are a couple of issues that I like to highlight here. Now we see the first response are always coming from the community. Now during tsunami we said there are waves of dis destruction. There were two waves of destruction, the tsunami waves, which were countered by three waves of compassion. The first wave of compassion came from the community. And whatever they had, they shared with uh, each other. Now that, 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 that phase really transcends boundaries. There's no ethnic or religious you know, discrimination. Everybody helps each other. But that's very naive to think that that situation will prevail at later stage of recovery. Mm -hmm. Now the case study that we have been uh, presented with doesn't cover the, probably the long-term rehabilitation phase. It's all on the initial phase of relief. It's a completely different uh, story 
when it comes to the later dynamics. I'll explain that. Now, <clears throat> firstly, the community, how do they see the disaster? Uh, now, some, uh, maybe a Christian community may say that it's God's will or God's wrath. Um, now, Buddhist community might interpret it as, as karma. You know, you are being punished for something that you had, some bad thing that you had done in the past. But actually, even in Buddhist uh, teachings, it's not that. Karma is only one factor. There are uh, four other factors, which includes natural phenomena and cosmological uh, uh, dimensions, which are very sort of scientific in terms of modern rational explanation to disasters. So disaster uh, give an opportunity uh, for, for us to revisit some of the fundamental teachings of, of, uh, of religion. So that has happened in this situation as well. And the people's own way of coping. Now you can uh, imagine in J Japan, you know, 2011 disaster and Mr. Asai presented that slide. That is a spontaneous response by the people. Now that country was not affected by uh, a conflict. It was a natural disaster and uh, in a community which was more or less uh, equal in terms of social and economic status and religion and all that. It's less complicated, but the trauma is of course as, as high as any other community. So they responded in a way that that was appropriate and which they thought was um, uh, uh, appropriate for their condition. So here uh, people responded by uh, trying to uh, accept it. Sometimes they will say, okay, uh, uh, Susie mentioned that uh, some of the uh, uh, buildings that, were, that survived the tsunami, uh, so not the tsunami, the, the cyclone, uh, were religious institutions. Now people be, uh, believe that it's because of that spiritual, you know, uh, protection that only those uh, buildings which belong to temples and, you know, churches got protected. But uh, on the other hand, uh, in a country where, uh, particularly about Sri Lanka, where in construction there are a lot of corruption and they, they don't put the right amount of cement in constructing buildings. But when they construct religious places, they are very, very particular. They don't steal from, you know, uh, the material. So good material is used, so one can say it, it, it stood because of that. So uh, that kind of uh, dialogue also comes into uh, force and then uh, sometimes this can be, these situations can be exploited by uh, people, even uh, religious leaders, and we have to be very careful. So the nature of the disaster, when you have widespread destruction and uh, your own first initial wave of response by the community uh, has to be then supported by external support coming, which is the second wave of uh, compassion. The third wave is the government response, which is the late, which, which comes very late. Uh, and uh, here we see all these uh, uh, assistance, particularly the second wave of assistance coming from external organizations, which have been already explained, and I don't want to uh, uh, touch on that. Uh, however, the important uh, lesson that, other lesson that we can uh, learn is uh, how we then manage the long-term recovery process. This is where the fundamental differences that are there in a society resurface. This is, this is the most difficult thing to, uh, to, to manage. Now, we have seen from our, our experience that initially uh, the, the emergency aid is uh, distributed very fairly, equitably, but when it comes to rebuilding, say, building the houses, it's a big job. 100, 200, thousands of houses you have to build. Then the assistance is sometimes sectarian. The, uh, if there's a government uh, which is uh, more um, uh, 
uh, interested in helping a particular uh, community belonging to a particular ethnicity and also the diaspora element come in because they live outside the country and they want to support that particular community, then how do you uh, manage those dynamics? There, I think the religious leaders and also uh, the way that the uh, religious communities behave, I think this can be positively managed and we have good examples and especially bringing in the religious leaders and uh, prepare them and working with them. It's not just merely capacity building through training and that kind of thing. No, bringing uh, really interaction, planning together in a larger geographic area. This is how we uh, approach. These are the resources required and these are the potential problems we have. These are the gaps. So joint planning uh, by uh, religious, uh, involving religious communities is so important. Then two final points. One is that how to manage media. Media also becomes very sectarian and divisive. Using religious teaching sometimes and we have to manage that also very well. I don't know how it has been in the case of uh, Myanmar. But these are some of the lessons. These are Because I am uh, highlighting this because we don't know when the next disaster is going to happen. And some of you are involved in uh, managing uh, uh, humanitarian crisis. And uh, finally, what's important is building resilience, building spiritual, psychological resilience and the, the, what we call religious assets. Religious assets are not just uh, physical assets or financial assets, but the doctrines themselves, I think, are very powerful. And especially in slow-onset uh, disasters, we are facing a, a drought in a few months' time in our country, and now we are preparing. You can imagine uh, when people do, uh, deny climate change, you know, a few hours ago I heard that uh, in the White House website, climate change is removed. So uh, how do you uh, uh, work in a situation where you really see in front of your eyes that something is happening and you, you prepare? So building resilience, bringing in the religious assets is very important because building community resilience is the long-term uh, 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 way to uh, face disasters whether they are man-made or natural disasters. So it's our responsibility uh, to put together and be creative and be innovative to build that capacity. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much, all of you. Uh, let's again open up for questions to our panelists. And I want to I want to note and invite in particular um, Cherry Nine, who is here from Brandeis, who is where you're a student now. But um, Cherry is from Myanmar and was involved in some of the response to Cyclone Nargis as well. So please, Cherry, if there's anything you want to add in particular, if you, you the, the floor is yours to do so. Yeah. There you go. Add a girl. <laughs> Yeah, um, I just would like to add something. Uh, sometimes as a, a Buddhist also, as I see, um, uh, the teaching that, uh, how should I say? Uh, so they want the, uh, the religious leader teach them, especially in Buddhism, like, okay, when you have faith in the Nagis, it's like, like something you have did uh, in your previous life. So this is like, you know, it's happened and it's impact of what you have done. So that also sometimes make a, like a cover or like 
people doesn't see this is the uh, like responsibility and accountability of the government. Sometimes these teaching of the religion make you know the, uh, leading to different way like people doesn't see in as a system and the politics um, like okay this is uh, uh, what I have did you know and this is my life and this is what uh, uh, how can I say that they don't see the uh, the responsibility so it's also same like in the Nagis also like some religion they really uh, take up the role and you know they take walk and they save many lives of the people but what I see is also like sometimes they don't uh, really teach the people I don't really sure about the other religion but in the Buddhism some uh, monks are teaching like that so it's, like, it's also what I see in the impact when people are really believe in that so whatever the religious leader is saying people really believe this is also you can see in the current conflict in the uh, Myanmar, like in the western part of the country, like this, um, this Rohingya and the Buddhist issue. Also, this religious leader rule is really important, and they are also Canadians, and they are also dividers. And at some point, I see this is also like um, because of the um, the organization uh, favoritism the religious leaders that whatever they said is also true and they especially in the rural area the villagers and everyone believe whatever the religious leaders say and whatever they say true so it's really important because in the uh, Buddhist uh, religion also the the monks is you know whatever he take the rule as a leader and people is easily believe in whatever he does and he say so this is just the point yeah thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Other questions? Uh, yes, here. My name is Nadia. Um, thank you to all of our panelists. Um, so I actually have a similar anecdote in Tunisia. We had a drought this year, and um, people were very anxious about um, about how they would continue to produce and how they would continue to provide for their families. And uh, while there was no government response, the Ministry of Religious Affairs just told people to pray for rain. That was their response for the longest time. And I wanted to ask you, because you said that this is a time to review religious teachings, but at the same time, as you mentioned, faith is resilience. So during these times, people are particularly sensitive about their beliefs, so it, it, I feel like, for instance, how can I help people see that praying for rain is not really a solution without taking away that tool of you know, patience and comfort from them? Thank you. Uh, thank you. I think uh, it's very similar to what's happening right now in my country. We have a drought, and uh, the monks are saying, go and uh, you know, do the chanting uh, of uh, you know, as, as, uh, the stanzas. Um, I, I think I would not counter it by saying do, uh, stop that because that's a, a strong belief. Uh, that shouldn't prevent us from preparing in other ways and uh, that's exactly what we are doing. Uh, my educated communities are ready for that because uh, if you try to say that this is not scientific and this will not produce rain, but sometimes, you know, because of pure chance, 
sometimes after prayer sometimes it rains so it reinforces that uh, you know so uh, uh, it's very difficult to count that so i think what we should do is uh, you know just uh, have that also to continue but then bringing in this is what you should do conservation of water uh, the plantations and then even say, um, you know uh, your in energy sa saving mechanisms those things can be promoted and that's exactly what we are doing and uh, with the new channels of communication that we have uh, they will get new messages it's earlier probably they will as uh, in myanmar only the monks uh, you know voice is the sole voice but now it's not like that there can be social media and other things i don't know about the situation in tunisia but open up multiple channels so that people will start discussing what are the other ways and some people will question that particular kind of pra uh, religious practice would it be possible to say back to the ministry tire camel would it be possible to say back to the ministry in Tunisia, tie your camel up? You know, that there's, a, there's an anecdote in Islam that, um, that I'm, I'm going to butcher this. I, I apologize to all the Muslims in the room, but that um, there was a man who kept losing his camel, and he came to the prophet, and he said, you know, I keep praying that my camel will not be lost, and then the camel will be lost again. What am I doing wrong? And the prophet said, well, tie your camel up. Hmm. Right? So there's this idea that... that you know, prayer is important, but so is action, right? And it exists within all of our traditions. But I also want to push back on something you said because to, to um, challenge a particular religious belief or teaching is not necessarily going to destroy somebody's faith or somebody's tradition. And you can often find within the, the tradition some of the resources to, 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 to challenge something that they're saying or to broaden it or to add in another component as well. So, so I wouldn't be afraid that by, by saying maybe prayer alone is not going to solve this problem, that you're going to take from them what faith can offer in terms of resilience and strength and hope. And um, if their foundation is completely destroyed by, by asking one simple question, then, then I'm not sure that they were really drawing as much resilience and strength from their, from their faith that was necessary to get them through difficult times. would be to do it in a way that doesn't seem um, arrogant because from what I've seen on Facebook for instance when people push back against that and say look praying for rain is not going to bring and it is not going to provide a solution people say praying by itself right people will say oh well do you think that because you're educated you can tell me what to pray for and what not to pray for and so perhaps uh, as you mentioned the key thing is to train people to approach this subject from um, kind of a point of n not an intellectual superiority mm -hmm. or here let me give you the scientific proof but rather yeah. from an additional tool okay. to, yeah. to give. It, well and I think this is particularly important for um, what we're talking about which is how humanitarian assistance should also respond to this kind of thing. Um, and, and what I often try to do in my own work is to um, not, not try to be a religious educator to, to people of faith of their own tradition, but to ask questions and to do it in a way that's curious and respectful. To say, okay, prayer is part of what sets the intention for you. Uh, um, that 
you know, for rain to come and so on and, and gives you some hope. What, what else from your tradition can you f pull on in order to prepare for a difficult time or in order to, um, you know, and, and so asking those kinds of questions rather than, a, than, even if you might know what exists within their traditions that might be useful, it's generally not gonna be helpful to try to teach them about their own traditions. Um, but rather to ask the questions that, that can elicit some of those answers and maybe some answers that you didn't expect. Sahar, thank you. I wanted to add to, to this point. I think it is, um, I mean, uh, the story of praying for, for rain, I think it happened in, in, in our communities, you know, in, in different ways. But the, the important thing, I think, that uh, in, we shouldn't also um, fall in the process where we, uh, we don't reinforce the accountability. Because sometimes these calls actually, they come from the politicians, from the government, when they fail to provide solution for their people. So they ask them, go and pray, and this is something that's coming from God because uh, you, know, you have done so and so. Uh, so I think, yes, we have to be very sensitive, um, you know, when, when we're talking to the people and, and, and we have to help the government accountable for, for their failures uh, and, 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 and try not to touch their, their religions, but at the same time to make the point, you know, um, you know, this is, this is just being used again, you know, the use of, of religion again, you know, again and again, uh, just to, to justify uh, sometimes uh, the failure or uh, not holding uh, anyone accountable. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Susie, Susie or Susan made me think about um, the reverse questioning and literacy for faith-based communities in terms of helping them understand, for instance, humanitarian actors and government, and so that faith-based communities can also ask elicitive questions um, to help tease out um, their perspective and maybe their way of thinking. Sometimes you can't do that because speed is so important in some of these situations, but just the ability to ask questions, not just of the religious communities, but of the humanitarian actors. And to challenge well. them on some of their right. assumptions. Mm -hmm. Other questions? I might, I just want to maybe, you've all hinted it, well, and sometimes directly spoke to it, but I was, I couldn't help but think in your comments, thinking back on our own situation in Hurricane Katrina, where we have, um, you know, enormous resources and supposedly a system in place to be able to re respond to crises. Um, yet, the, and Vinya, your comment, the long-term issue. So we had both, in Katrina, we had three issues. We had the uh, infrastructure that was not being uh, attended to, and it was primarily in a poor area of, of the country. Then we had, a, we did have a failure of immediate response. And then we had just a kind of long-term disaster of what it meant to, to rebuild. And I just wonder um, if you have any further thoughts, any of you, about 
uh, with that framework, which I so appreciate, Vinya, that, that notion of immediate response for people on the ground, I, I hope that that would be, and is, I think, somewhat common, right? We, we see people in need and we, and, we, and we respond, and I think that's a, a very powerful, positive, hopeful sign. What, what does it mean to think constructively about, about the kind of long-term, because we don't really do that, do we? we? We have the immediate ideas anyway, and then we have the assumption that otherwise everything's fine. So what, what might it mean when you think about those three areas in your experience and how religion might in, inform us in relationship to humanitarian action and aid? Just, uh, I'll give a, a part response to that because uh, I don't know how to connect the religion. Now, I, I teach a course at Rendai's University and one of the examples that I use is Katrina. And I, I always ask the students, uh, have there been any internal displacement in the United States? 100% students will say, no, no, no. Internal yeah. displacement is right. in... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Then, if you, you ask, then, uh, how about after Katrina, do you think people were displaced and they were in camps? Uh, then they said, no. That's, I mean, these are half of the class is US students. And um, then I ask, okay, then I have the paper, then I, you know, refer to the paper and say, now, you know how many were in this... Uh, camps for how long they never believed that they were there for months before being resettled and some were not resettled uh, yeah, in the longer. proper way yeah. much longer uh, so I think the question is that our own uh, systems in our own countries don't uh, allow the news to be uh, you know uh, disseminated and uh, even in academic circles I was so surprised how little literature is available and how little case studies are being discussed here in the United States on disaster-related uh, events in the United States. So the, the question is how can we sensitize the public and the decision makers uh, in a way. So what can make it happen? Then there are stakes uh, involved, you know, uh, who, who, who gives the voice to those people and in what ways. So generally if you look at uh, the, the different phases, the immediate phase, I think Katrina again, was a problem and I remember uh, I think uh, President Clinton said that Sri Lanka did a better job than United States after you know Katrina so um, I think it's the it's the way uh, that the systems that exist uh, before the disaster start because that is where you surface the structural in, in inequities and structural defen uh, uh, defects of the system so um, how do you address that? So we have to look at uh, while uh, atten uh, attending to immediate and thereafter recovery needs, then uh, some of the fundamental uh, problems that exist in your so own society. Now, after tsunami, uh, we had that exercise because we, it's re it really surfaced some of the more deeper, uh, you know, discriminatory uh, systems in our own society at a macro, micro level, which we didn't know before. So then there were, uh, you know, human rights groups and also uh, humanitarian organizations uh, highlighting them and working with the government and trying to address. So it's a process that you'll have to figure out how the religion can play a role. Honestly, I, I don't know how, but the religious leaders definitely can be champions of really fi finding a solution. Definitely, they are, they are social leaders who are acceptable and they are being listened to by the political leadership as well. Mm. So that way the religions can be very powerful. Great. Thank you.
Any other questions? Can I make one point? Yes, please. Um, you know, a lot of us talked about the, the importance of faith and spirituality in the face of a uh, natural disaster and, and the, the importance that that was in Myanmar and Japan and Sri Lanka. One of the things that came out um, in, in Myanmar and, and I think in, in other places too, I've heard, I've heard it percolate up in some, in some of our discussion earlier today, is this concern that in increasingly working with local faith-based actors and organizations, we're, we're setting them up to follow the standards of the international system in terms of reporting and financial accountability and so on. And, and I think that one of the greatest concerns that I have is that in working with, um, in working in these spaces that we end up turning faith-based actors and organizations into technocrats. And we take out that very, the theological imagination that Alistair was talking about, the very element of faith and spirituality that we've been talking about as being very important by, by forcing them to look like um, what the humanitarian agencies and international systems um, look like. So, so I, I, I do want to lift that up as, as um, something that needs to be thought about um, in terms of the practicalities of how we work with religious organizations in this work and not throw out the baby with the bathwater in terms of that which makes, which really sets them apart and that which is fundamental to their power of transformation um, is that very faith and spirituality. Um, I'll leave it at that. Great. And looks like we have a Uh, my name is Michelle McKenzie. I'm from Canada, um, and uh, I've retired from a career in global marketing, and now I'm working with USAID as a contractor in Jordan. And I've taken a year off from that um, to do a fellowship here at Harvard in the Advanced Leadership Initiative. So this is all a bit new to me, both international development and these topics that we're talking about, but very interesting to me. And the thing that I'm, I'm thinking about as I sit here and thinking about my experience now in the Middle East is issues of um, humanitarian action and uh, religious uh, literacy, religious organizations, and issues of mental health. In uh, we're talking about resilience, and I think we're talking. I think we're talking about that, <laughs> but I, I don't hear much about that in in the field, and I see great need. And I'm wondering about the intersection mm. of this topic and what I can learn from anybody here, actually, not just the panelists, but one of them, one on the panel who can comment on that. Great question, thank you. Uh, I can start just by saying uh, in some conversations that a group of us had yesterday, one thing that came up repeatedly was that, um, that faith-based actors, both international and, and local, um, are very involved in psychosocial support, um, I think more so than secular uh, humanitarian organizations, and that there's probably a connection there to kind of the, the kind of more holistic view and, and thinking about uh, people and all of their needs. And um, in the in the readings, uh, one of the readings for this uh, session, there was discussion of um, two different approaches by local faith actors, one secular and, and one faith-based in terms of psychosocial support in, in Myanmar after the um, cyclone. And um, actually, it, it talked about kind of a different different approach, one very uh, uh, Western-focused uh, Western and, and one um, more of an Eastern-focused. And 
it was interesting, they, they found in the end that, that they were both successful. Um, so I think, uh, but just interesting in terms of different approaches and, um, and that maybe there's something there in the, in the approach and, and viewpoint of faith-based actors. Thank you. Um, okay, we're gonna give you the first and last word here on, the, on this panel, thank you. Uh, I just want to add the rule of the um, religions in Myanmar. In the case of Myanmar also, like um, they, the rule is, is really um, crucial, important for the people because it's like in Myanmar, either uh, Buddhists or Muslim or uh, Christian, they really believe in religions. And uh, um, in the rural area, the religious leader are the real leader. They are more powerful than the uh, community leaders. So right after the Nagis, like um, monks, they preach a sermon and so they open up the meditation center. So it's really helpful for the people to console um, their sufferings. And also they regularly go to the church and they listen and, and it's really helpful. And Tena also in the, um, the ethnic minority areas while well, ongoing uh, 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 fighting armed conflict like uh, the monastery and the churches accommodate many IDBs. And also sometimes we have to use the, these religious uh, vehicles to rescue the people. Because if, if there is, you know, with a religion flag, like they don't shoot. So, so it's like, it's really, um, you know, important and it's really, so when you are going to that area, it's really, they are the really key person to know the area and to understand the context because they, they, they are the, the primary leaders in, in the area. Yeah, thank great, you. great, thank you. All right, well, please join me in thanking the panel uh, for their <laughs> remarkable comments. We are going to, without a break, now just transition into a conversation around table. Um, and so I know that some of my colleagues will stay here and some will go sit and they'll have a little bit of movement, but I'm going to ask us all to pretty much stay put. And this round table is really an opportunity to reflect on what we heard today uh, briefly um, with some, we're not trying to tie all this into a bow, but a, a, a bit of a synopsis, if you will, maybe highlighting some themes we heard as participants. And then we want to open it up for all of you, too, with a special focus on next steps. What might it look like? Um, Sarah Ben, this is what we set up. That's who's, that's who's going to be here. Um, so a special focus on what, what have we learned? So um, we, we've had a couple questions, both what can we do, the question that you asked um, earlier that I want to come back to, what can we do, and that was in particular to, a, to the particular uh, panel, but I want to just open it up if you wouldn't mind having us do so. What, what might we do? Uh, and then we were also asked what, what have we learned from this opportunity? Um, without having to necessarily make those public pronouncements, I hope we'll all be thinking about it, and, and I have some thoughts about our work and what we have learned uh, through these really rich conversations. Um, let, me, let me start while people are still organizing here. Um, and to hear, I think you're coming up also, please. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, I, I wanted to just raise, I want to raise three quick 
quick points that I hope will be useful. Um, and again, so I also, like my colleague Steve Prothero, is coming at this from a religious studies framework, and I'm also coming at this from the framework of, a, of being a social ethicist. So this is the lens that I bring to these questions, and my concern around better understanding of religion is that if we better understand religion, we have more tools to understand the complexities of how religions function. But with that larger lens on, I want, I'd like to ask, I'm gonna, one of the things that, and again, Tahir, you raised this earlier, I wanna come back to this larger framework. All of these disasters, um, the humanitarian crisis of infectious disease. Now, disease is itself a challenge, but of course the challenge of that particular crisis was discrimination uh, and uh, misrepresentation. So we had the Ebola and a, a challenge to what Ebola, what the source of Ebola was, and then we have HIV AIDS, of course, that had immense discrimination. So the notion of the exacerbation of this by social factors. We have the conflict, uh, issue of humanitarian crisis and conflict, which self-evidently speaks of, uh, of broken structures, social structures that uh, are, are actually the focus of that particular one. We have the humanitarian crisis of resource distribution. And if for those of us who do believe in not only climate change and the effects of that, but just generally, what does it mean to be attentive to Minimum to uh, finite resources that are you know, important for literally for our lives. What does it mean for us to be a community of people, to be accountable to the equitable distribution and access to those resources? And then finally, of course, natural disaster, which again, uh, except for the relationship between natural disaster and climate change, we also have the vulnerable communities, who's especially vulnerable in relationship to natural disasters. So one of my questions for, to raise, or just have it before us, is that from, from my perspective, when I think about the roles of religion, I think about the roles of religion outside of those contexts, but what's the roles that religions can play, and I, my, from my own perspective, think should be playing to help strengthen the social structures themselves? To prior to the to the disasters or the natural disasters where humanitarian aid is called for, but what roles should we religions be playing in societies to help um, strengthen those fundamental uh, structures themselves of well-being, and of community, and of neighborliness, and of resilience? And I don't know the role of humanitarian action organizations in that, but I want to just highlight religions aren't just. Obviously, they're not just about responses to natural or humanitarian concerns, but, but I, I, I would like to, as a religious person myself, I want to call out my, my, my Christian colleagues first, because that's my tradition. We must step up as Christians to address issues we know exist. We don't have to wait for disasters of sorts, but step up to address the concerns that are right before us uh, every day in the news, one, that's one point. And uh, just an aside, with, without getting too technical, the neoliberal framework that is now fundamental in relationship to globalization is a very major player in this. Uh, and that the frameworks of the welfare state, the, which where governments did have some responsibility to others that were also inspired often by religious frameworks, is now really dismantled pretty much across the board. So I just want to say that there's, there are larger economic forces that are, that are at play here. The second is I want to talk about the secularisms. We, we've been talking a lot about religion, um, but secular is not, first of all, secular is not a singular framework. Secularisms, 
there are many ways that secular isms function. And so I would like to encourage us, and we've been talking about this, Steve raised it earlier in a conversation and, a, and we were talking about it over lunch. I'd like to encourage us to be thinking, when we think about the combination of what's it mean to understand the, the religious ideologies in a given cultural moment, I'd also like to encourage us to think of secular ideologies. And then I guess the real question is, when we understand a culture, I think we have to understand what are the worldviews that are embedded in those cultures that shape the nature of value, that shape the nature of choice, that shape the nature of um, what is uh, uh, the commerce, uh, human commerce of, of interaction. So those are deeply embedded values that are secular as well as religious and they interact and they're messy, but how do we, how do we read those? How do we watch for those? How do we see those so we see something that's beyond uh, that's the, the, the heart, I guess, of, of what drives or inspires a, a culture or the hidden, maybe, dimensions of those. So worldview literacy, maybe, is what I'm including then, secular literacies. And then finally, religious literacy, which is what I, what I do and what I care a lot about. And I so appreciate Steve's earlier comment. I, I'm, 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 I'll own my dogmatism on this, but I will say it uh, as explicitly again as I can. I always get nervous when we start saying this is, a, uh, and I'm gonna s repeat what Steve said, but I think go a little beyond, beyond it as well. When we say that this is um, political Christianity or political Islam as opposed to real Islam or, or the good, you know, religion is, religion's religion when it's good and it's somehow distorted or manipulated, we use this language a lot, when we don't like what's happening. I just wanna say, religion, as Steve said, is a powerful force, period. It's not in and of itself good or bad, unless you are speaking out of a devotional assertion about your own tradition. And then you can make a claim, a normative claim about what you want to see happen, what you believe this religion represents. But it's not the truth about the religion. And I really, I wanna underscore that because we get so distracted. We end up then having fights about, well, that's really not Islam or that's not really Christianity or that's not really Buddhism. Buddhist nationalism is a political movement. It has nothing to do with religion. It, it, we cannot, when we parse that, we again reinforce the notion that religion lives in some isolated, sphere over here uh, that's somehow pure, but then whoever gets in power gets to define what that pure thing is, and that's a very dangerous thing, because religion's powerful. So if you're defining it uh, in a very specific way, it's a powerful tool and is often used powerfully for uh, nefarious ends. So I want to just underscore the desire to have us keep religion, to rem remember the complexity of religion, and say we cannot parse it out and say it's either a good or a bad force. It's always just a force, and it's always it's always used. And I'll use the language used for good or ill. And you can say then manipulated for good or ill. You use any language, but you can't say one without the other. And then finally, we've had this interesting conversation about should we talk about religious literacy or should we because people get nervous when you say religion, and then they want to shut down. They make all the assumptions about religion, and we, we should talk about belief, or we should talk about you know, cultural values, and kind of, you know, so we get our foot in the door. And I think that those are political decisions in different contexts that I respect, but I also just want to make a case. I want us to own religion. I want us to own it, I want us to be able to, to redefine it and not necessarily only be reactive to what people are, how people are using religion. 
And people used it. It's absolutely true, and I'm very con conscious of how I think people will hear religion, which is why I am so persistent about saying, yeah, I want to talk about religious literacy because I don't want those definitions to prevail or continue to have the kind of force that they have. So those are my uh, reflections from some of the overarching questions of the day. I'm so grateful for my colleagues who helped me articulate those or think about those in some explicit ways. And so all of us here are going to just share some initial reflections, and then we'll open it up for your comments and, uh, and thoughts. So uh, we can just, why don't we just go, actually, no. That's good yeah, Catherine's got to take off. Who, who, schedules, uh, who schedules something for Inauguration Day? From, with so many colleagues from Washington, this is insane. So we got, we, people, people couldn't get flights later uh, out from Washington. So Catherine, why don't you go ahead and share your thoughts, and then I know you're going to have to run to catch a plane. Yeah, I'm going to bolt at about 4.15. Um, the, this um, uh, dynamic and, and sort of packed couple of days uh, has, above all, um, encouraged me to think about exactly what do we mean by religious literacy and to do what I mentioned earlier, which is to try to unpack it. So a few thoughts on unpacking. Um, I think we're dealing with at least four issues on religious literacy, and I would also highlight that we're talking about literacy in various ways for any profession or for any, any uh, walk of life, uh, and I'll come back to that. But in this specific case, first of all, we're dealing uh, with the historical phenomenon that Steve Prothero has um, documented so well of the elimination essentially of a lot of religious metaphors and a lot of religious assumptions from uh, public education uh, in the United States and, and in Europe particularly. Uh, a, a failure to sort of modernize teaching about religion through public systems, um, through public education in, in a lot of parts of the world, a narrowness of understandings of the implications. So I think this is population-wide uh, that we're talking about. The second um, is uh, much more specific to the kinds of problems we're talking about. It's the perceptions of the size and complexity of the religious landscape, which is something that, I mean, to me, if you don't see diversity as a sort of almost second word after talking about religious X, um, you're missing something. And of course, that is one of the phenomena we're very familiar with, which is the tendency to oversimplify uh, what religious belief means. Um, and of course, this involves a number of different disciplines um, and, and professions, uh, anthropology, law, etc. cetera. Um, the third is that religious studies is very cross-sectoral as is the engagement uh, and dealing with um, even the, the countries that we've been dealing with now. You have issues of language. Uh, it intersects with culture, anthropology, uh, with economics, um, with uh, political science, etc. So you have that aspect of it. How do you fit your understanding of religious demography, for example, within a broader context of social analysis? How do you and it is, I mean, just again, very specifically, uh, one of the big issues with systematic sort of country data is that the religious data is often much worse than any other from the Ebola case as we looked at uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. 
Um, data is pretty awful generally, but the religious data is much worse than any other. In many countries, there there's a reluctance even to put that onto the uh, onto the agenda. Um, and then the fourth dimension is actual religious actors and religious leaders, their capacity to navigate as they are engaged in a wider range of disciplines. So those are four really quite different um, different things. So um, we're dealing with um, patchy, siloed knowledge. Um, and one something I, have, I think we haven't focused on very much is the transformation of the way people are getting knowledge uh, through the internet and through all sorts of different sources. Mm -hmm. I've been fascinated at the beliefnet.com, which I think is sort of fizzled to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it had this sort of belief-o-matic or whatever, so you could tell what religious tradition you were supposed to be in, a huge upsurge in interest in Quaker um, and uh, Unitarian Universal, I think. Uh, so these are, these are, so the responses to this are, first of all, and I think it is something that the religious literacy, in the way that you're thinking about it, is how can it and should it be embedded in the education system? in societies that are increasingly plural, um, so that you demystify, so that you encourage a curiosity and a fascination for different uh, traditions. So that, I think, is, uh, and that's kindergarten through lifelong learning, but, but particularly K to 12 is, uh, and of course, it presents the challenges different in different countries. It's a, a huge challenge in, many parts of the world and the way you have teaching about religion and how, how that works. Um, second, something we also haven't talked about very much, but which I'm actually in the middle of a reflection on at this point, is the interfaith movement. And how do these issues of religious literacy relate to the tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of organizations that see themselves as engaged in interfaith all the way from very sophisticated theology to, well, what Habitat calls the theology of the hammer, which is um, really trying to encourage relationships through action. And I think that, that that insofar, I mean, it's a big question. Is this a movement? Is it a phenomenon that, um, I guess, Ibu Patel calls it the sort of movement of the 21st century? Um, is that true? And how does it relate to peace? How does it relate to the development of community, which is Tom Friedman's current uh, thing. Uh, uh, so how how do you how do you do that? But I think part of that is is having some notion of standards and expectations, and to some extent, I think what you're referring to before, which is the way that you think that it relates to social cohesion. Mm -hmm. So education interfaith. Um, the third is is I think much more specifically what we've been focusing on here, which is really for professional purposes. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you're working as a humanitarian worker, or if you're working as a disaster planner, or if you're working as an education specialist, um, even microfinance, I don't care what gender relations, whatever it is, um, all of these different fields, what is it that you should know? And what, uh, how, do you, how do you do it? And in that sense, I think I picked out, I think, six sort of areas that we could focus on. One is a focused programs that link scholars. Um, mm -hmm. In other words, courses or actual, uh, real, uh, 
you know, having a master's degree in interreligious whatever um, that is is not so much for teaching, but is is actually sort of a public policy type degree. Um, the second um, is, and this is, I think, something I've been focusing on with some frustration, is that this sense of, of, a, of a standard of, lit of knowledge about religion, to, not to use the words religious literacy, that it would be embedded in the Kennedy School, School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, organizations that I know, law school, medical school, education programs, um, public health, uh, that in a sense you, you include some kinds of practical modules. You have an expectation that no one's going to come out of these. I mean, we've talked a lot about it. Uh, there are various task forces that have been working on this with the State Department. What mm -hmm. should diplomats know? Right. Um, right. Is there a core of knowledge of exposure uh, that it's reason reasonable to expect? But those are sort of uh, the idea of, of specific embedded programs in professional School. preparation schools. The third is development of tailored programs um, for ambassadors, for the... Um, people being assigned to field offices from Save the Children, um, from um, UNICEF, uh, and also for local staff who in fact may need this more than anyone else. And I think these issues are very much institution by institution. To give you an example, I'm working with the World Food Program and the, um, on trying to help them to think about how religion applies to zero hunger and to their work in food relief. Uh, but they brought in all their country managers from around the world, and they spend um, half a day, which is, I mean, hugely yeah. expensive for a big organization like that, on basically technology and mm -hmm. Bitcoin. And in other words, the sort of the hypothesis was this is the central issue that people dealing with um, relief and humanitarian activities need to know. But how do you, if you, if you had the opening to do that, with religion, what, what is it you would do at an institutional level, setting standards, um, incentives, uh, making sure that senior people ask questions, is it embedded in performance evaluations? I mean, sorry, that's the no, way these yeah. institutions do things. And if you don't have that, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, make a difference. Um, then we, we, uh, a lot can be done with online reading lists, books, obviously exciting books. Um, we have lots of examples of that, but you know, providing uh, a set of, sort of sources and then pointing people to them. I think that there's a, an important um, a niche for executive education. Mm -hmm. um, because remember, we're talking about lifelong learning. Yeah. Uh, when you finish Absolutely. graduate school, you're just beginning. And I think that executive education is one way to handle this. Mm -hmm. And that could be a week, two weeks, um, relatively short, um, lots of creative ways to do it. There are lots of peace building programs that are very creative where you come and then you go out and do mm -hmm. things. But I think having a, a, a really rigorous um, approach there. And then finally, I think that the sort of the backup to this religious literacy is the kind of documentation that uh, that we both in the in the uh, Divinity School, but also at, at Georgetown at the Berkeley Center that we're trying to develop is to sort of develop materials and show people if you are taking religious issues seriously in Bangladesh, 
this is the kind of information that, that you need, but of course that needs to have uh, a back and forth. Um, the teaching case studies is clearly part of it. Online resources is absolutely critical because everything changes all the time. So um, interviews, uh, all of these are sort of testing the water uh, and you sort of you've got the horse now. I mean, you've got the water for the horse and you, you've got the horses somewhere, but you've got to bring the horses to the water and I think that's a stage that we have not yet reached. Great, great, thank you. Um, any one of the other three of you? What, let's, that doesn't have to go in order. Kill play, kill play, play. <laughs> okay. Um, I've got three, I've gone back to my uh, Trinitarian yeah. roots. <laughs> uh, so I've got two, three, uh, three sort of more uh, abstract reflections or, or conceptual things and then three very practical things. Um, the, the abstract reflections are really around what's the, what are the different layers or the different lenses, there was the word you used, that we've been touching upon. And I, and I think it's worth noting that one of them, uh, I, I call pluralism and the management of religion in the public sphere. This is, this is just part of that big debate in terms of in the 21st century uh, with, uh, a, in a globalised world with uh, plural uh, affiliations, commitments, how do we order our affairs and in particular where does religion fit into to public debate? Um, and I think uh, some of the issues about understanding of different secularisms is, is, is relevant to that. Frankly, the, the, the bit of it, then going to another lens, the bit of it that most excites me and interests me, because we could be looking at the management of religion in uh, the law or commercial uh, taxation policy. There's a, there's a number of levels, but the humanitarian world, my second lens, is fascinating to me. And it's fascinating, I think, for a number of reasons that have been revealed over the last... Uh, 36 hours. Um, uh, one of the, the, the senses is that uh, it's a world, and this reflects perhaps my optimism, um, but also uh, picking up something that Catherine was saying, I think my particular interest in more acute humanitarian settings, uh, that uh, within the humanitarian world and understanding then the role of religion and other actors in that, uh, we are uh, faced with understanding moral sentiment and, and, and humanitarian action. I want to explain a little bit more about that. Um, that in a way there are forces around humanitarian response that are, are, are challenging and difficult, but actually force us together or, or that raise some big issues. So the moral sentiment idea, let, let's, let me link, actually there's three things I want to suggest come together. And this is, a, again, a strange day, well, not necessarily a strange day, an important day to be talking about the notion of global solidarity. But uh, although we've knocked and maybe there needs to be the amendment of the humanitarian principles, it's the idea that there are publics out there that care about this issue, uh, that there are people, let's forget states for a minute, that there is a global, my assertion, my confidence is that uh, in the wake of suffering, the human response is around solidarity and some movement towards that. And we need to cultivate that and defend that and protect that and reinvigorate that. And I think it's at a, t a time of, of weakness at the moment. But that global solidarity, so while we might disagree, and I think particularly Catherine's right, when we go into post-conflict redevelopment, there's lots of argy-bargy develops, but there's something around acute emergencies that bring us together in terms of that sense something should be done. Maybe that's a little naive. But there's also then that sense of then in those instances it's local capacities, it's local response that, that's absolutely key and we want to support that and recognise that and, and not overpower that. Um, 
And then I think the, the, the institutional bit, the, the, the Oxfam bit, is linking those two and, and including donors. Because Oxfam works because of global sentiment, it seems right. to me. Or your work is invigorated or supported by global sentiment. And if you're uh, working opposing that, it's much more challenging. But if you see, or any humanitarian or organisation sees that somehow its job is to carry the obligations of global sentiment into the locality, we've got a really interesting arena, and actually an optimistic arena, I think, for why we're dealing with these more abstract issues of, of plurality and engagement, which it's bad, but this is really important for when we bring global lens to the local and we have agencies that are, are trying to support that. And that leads me to a third abstract observation, which is really prompted by your point, Diane, um, which I hadn't thought about before, is uh, what should religious organisations or structures or religions do in terms of local uh, solidarity or, or, or promoting community protection. And I suppose this reflects my own uh, theological reflection, which could be wrong, um, but partly reflects my own experience, but I think also in, in, in uh, fellow travellers on this journey, um, of the difference between re religiosity in context of comfort and indifference versus that in context of suffering and injustice. Uh, and the vitality of religion that I hinted at earlier, again, is an optimistic force. And, it, and, and Sahara, you spoke to that very well earlier on. It's not that there's no problems there, but there's something vital in that experience and that, and that use of religion, that drawing upon religion, which I think many of us as people of faith know, that when things are tough, we are drawing more on that than when we just had a pay rise and, 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 and life is very easy. And, we're, and, and, and I think we also show more indifference to suffering around us the more comfortable we are. I mean, that's, that's a little bit of my illustration of personal theology. But, but, it, but, the, but the point would be that the, the exploration of that, that sense of when public religion becomes vital... Uh, is, is when it potentially connects with that sense that there is suffering either on our doorstep or through global sentiment that we feel attached to. Those are three very abstract ideas, three very practical ideas. One is to consolidate. That there are, this is no insult, but half, not quite half, a third of the people in this room I've probably heard speak once or twice in the last year. There's nothing really wrong with that, but there's a danger we mustn't duplicate. There's a sense to which we need to learn lessons and then move on and feel that we're, we're building that. Uh, part of that consolidation of knowledge, I think, then is also uh, understanding the, the potential, the unique opportunities that particular initiatives provide us for focus or leverage. And so whether it's uh, local humanitarian leadership or, or, or whether it's religious literacy or, or whether it's the, the confluence of Oxfam and, and Harvard Divinity School, I just encourage you to use that particularity mm -hmm. to, to, to benefit, to do something that none of the rest of us can do because yeah. of those alignments. Right. Uh, and it seems to me that we have an obligation, all the rest of us as well, to do the things that we're uniquely equipped to do in this playing field rather than risk uh, duplication. And the third thing, despite all the abstract uh, reflections earlier, is to apply right. uh, this knowledge uh, 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 fragmentary and uh, uh, nuanced as it might need to be, but the sense to which, because of what I said earlier, this is not a, a purely an area of reflection. It has to be an area of moral response and action. Uh, and so it's great to have colleagues in the room whose job next week will not be to read a book or to give a lecture, uh, but to provide humanitarian assistance. And, and we do thank you that you're here. Yes. And I thank you as a privilege of an academic working with you guys. 
uh, and we need to help you in applying, in doing stuff. Right. Uh, and I encourage you in the initiative to do that as well. Great. Thank you. I'm going to bolt, but can I just add one thing yeah. that I forgot, that I think that the Harvard Divinity School, but also Georgetown, can and should be doing, which is safe space for the tough issues. Yeah. Uh, sexuality, yeah. Uh, the issue of proselytism, but mm -hmm. also some practical issues. A lot of tension at, around orphan issues, around mm. various kinds of um, approaches on education. So I think that being willing to tackle those issues is, is absolutely critical. And thank you, and I'm running. Great, thank you, Catherine. Sorry you have to run. But. Shall I go? Go for it. Ah, <laughs> um, uh, where shall I start? We've, we've, we've talked about religion and uh, the multiplicity of a diversity within religious thinking, both uh, between religions and within the, religion, the religious traditions themselves. And, you know, I've, I've been struck by how no one's been keen to kind of, at any point, define what religion is, right? And, and I know within the sociology of religion that people, some people are very kind of wary about doing that. And, um, and one person that whose reading I always kind of turn to is that of Talal Asad. And he, he talks about Islam and he talks about it being a, a discursive tradition, you know, um, a kind of argument through time, as it were. And people's engagement with uh, a script and their interpretation of that, given a historical, social, economic context that they're in. And the, the sort of pressing uh, particular problems that they face at, at that particular juncture requires this kind of interpretive engagement with, with the text. Now, it seems to me that today, you know, displacement is one of those pressing issues. You know, what, what do you do in this kind of context? Another person that I kind of turn to often um, you know, I have my two books, there's uh, Genealogies of Religion, and on the other hand, there's uh, The Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon. Mm. And Fanon says something, I always keep his quote handy. He says, to, he says, let us not pay tribute to Europe by creating states, institutions, and societies which draw their inspiration from her. Humanity is waiting for something other than other from us than such an imitation, which would be an almost which would be almost an obscene caricature. Okay? And I think about this because we're not just talking about religion, we're talking about religion in the context of uh, a, a moment in history, you know, for the past a hundred years or so where every conceivable space on earth has been mapped out. And every conceivable space has been uh, territorialized under nation states. And nation states have their own mythology. Nation states have their own metaphysics. Lisa Malky famously called this a sedentarist metaphysics, which privileges those people who are in place. And the refugee other, is presented as a 
a referent other. Okay, so presented, the citizen is presented as the person who's in their right space, and the refugee or the displaced person is not. But religions have been around for a lot longer than the nation state. And this, I think, is, is, is really important. If, if, we can't, if we can't sort of extricate ourselves from this sedentarist metaphysics, which frames those uh, uh, principal uh, frames that we have around time, space, who belongs, who doesn't, then we're going to be stuck uh, on, on repeat. I was speaking to someone who was talking about the displacement crisis in Ethiopia in the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s, and a humanitarian worker. And he was saying, it's no different today. 40 years have passed, nearly 50. And still, the same issues that we're faced today, we, we faced before. So, you know, this sounds quite depressing, right? You know, there doesn't seem to be much hope here. But I was, I've been quite fortunate in the past five, six months to, um, to be involved in kind of volunteer initiatives. People who are thinking beyond the nation state. And uh, Catherine mentioned it as well. The, the, the opportunities for, for interfaith on a lived kind of practical level. And you see people who are coming together from a variety of traditions and of no religious tradition, coming together to contend with the, the violence of the nation state, because the violence is perpetuated at the border. It's performed at the border, and the border is where we find the, the filtering of you know, human and non-human, in a sense. And, and it's in these sort of spaces, these kind of spaces where people are coming together to contest uh, as I said, uh, the dominance, the he hegemonic sort of understanding of nation-state. And sometimes that's done through a religious vernacular, mm -hmm. but not always. And sometimes it's done through institutional actors, but not always. Okay? And we have to be kind of wary because there is, there's, you know, again, we live at a time where we've mentioned the neoliberalism word, but the way in which that co-opts pretty much anything it touches, right? So the way in which, you know, you can have a neoliberal version of Islam, no problem. If you go to uh, Mecca um, and the Kaaba, you know, this is the preeminent religious site of Islam. And right next to it is this enormous clock tower which looms large over it. If ever there was a sign of modernity, it's this clock tower. And again, what's housed within this clock tower? Uh, a North American conglomerate holding, Fairfield Hotels, I think, is the, is the company. Global capital. Yeah. Are you sure it's not Trump? <laughs> Could quite possibly be. Uh, you know, I, but, but the point is, you know, these two are kind of living at the same, in the same sort of space. And how we deal with that, I think, is, is fundamental. And unless we kind of, not just 
unless we challenge the, the frames of this sedentarist metaphysics, we're going to, as I said, be set to kind of repeat. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And Susie? I think it's the nature of asking several people to reflect on the major themes that, come, that came up um, during a conversation that there's going to be some redundancy, but uh, hopefully I will, I will try to limit my redundancy. I, I want to start with the Buddhist lesson. Um, and it goes back to what Diane was saying about the, the need to be careful with the categories that we use, the names we use, and to interrogate them. So within, within Buddhism, there's an understanding that um, suffering can be caused by, by the process of naming or categorizing things. Because as soon as we do that, as soon as we attach a name or a category to something, we begin to see something that is, that is in reality dynamic and changing and, and not inherently real. Um, or static as, as real and static. And we begin to reify that, to turn it into something that it is not. And so um, bringing that lesson to bear then in how we use the terms like secularism and religion, um, but also all of the terms within those categories as well, um, Buddhism and Islam, or how we look at a different context when we're beginning to navigate it. If we can, um, again, turning to Buddhism, use, this, use, the, use a process of skillful means, upaya, and, and use all names and categories with, with care um, in understanding that they never fully capture the reality of what's going on on the ground. Um, two, the, what came up a lot was um, issues of power, right? The, the whole idea that aid, money is power, that there's power dynamics between the global and the local, that there's power dynamics between various religious communities, that there's power dynamics within religious communities, and that you need to be um, conscious of that when you're navigating it. I, I, what came up a little bit as well, but what I've been thinking about quite a bit as we've been discussing is also, um, the, the power that comes through how the international system engages with religion and how that then forms religion in a particular way. And of course there's gender dynamics or consequences um, when, when we're only engaging, for example, with male clerics and, and some of the issues that Manal was raising earlier today about that's based in assumptions about religious authorities being the ones who shape traditions in a way that might not actually be true in a lot of um, lay people and, and people within communities are actually shaping religious attitudes and motivations and, and um, religious practices as well on the ground. Um, but, but I'm also thinking about how international engagement with um, international organizations' engagement with religion shapes it in, a, in this broader context too, bringing back the, the concerns of particularly in areas, post-colonial areas, um, where there's such sensitivity about the, the the underlying or historical assumptions that have shaped international law, international system, inter the human rights paradigms, and so on. I was telling an anecdote to Diane last night. I went from studying here at Harvard Divinity School to studying at Fletcher, and I was sitting in a class where we were learning about humanitarian law and the Geneva Conventions and um, you know what states can do, what armed actors can do and not do in particular settings. And I looked around in wonder, because I, I, I was thinking, this is Augustine and Aquinas. Does anybody realize that all we're doing is talking about about Yusin Bello and, and Yusin Bello. 
Um, and so recognizing some of those, those ways in which the international, international law, international relations, international system has come out of particular religious and cultural contexts and yes, become secularized in the sense that, you know, that the God has been taken out of it, re explicit religious language, but it still has those assumptions. And so now when the international organizations and systems or the UN or USIP or others are now then going to um, seeking to make local or to indigenize or to contextualize um, their engagement, what, how, how is that process in itself, the, the way that they're thinking about what religion is or what religion should be or what good religion is versus bad religion is, how that is also being informed by particular assumptions about how religion operates, right? That, it, that, has, that has very Judeo-Christian um, basis for it. And I take as an example here um, some of the discussion we had in our, in our panel about um, natural disaster response in terms of trauma healing. Because as, as was being lifted up by, by my Buddhist colleagues, um, and I can think we can say this across the board, religion is about trauma healing. Religion is about responding to suffering in the world around us and developing the resources internally, but also the practices to be able to, um, to improve the well-being of all people in oneself, to be able to reduce suffering and so on. So this idea now that international organizations are coming in and training religious communities in trauma healing, but bringing a particular um, paradigm or practice to what trauma healing looks like is, is then shaping those religious traditions in particular ways and how, how they understand um, why, why suffering is caused and about how to address suffering. Um, the third point that I, oh, well, okay, a third point that I want to make is, um, that came up a lot was this idea of getting beyond instrumentalization on both sides, so making sure that the international system and political actors aren't instrumentalizing religion and that religion is also not instrumentalizing um, the, uh, that religion is not instrumentalizing the humanitarian agendas and organizations and so on. Um, and the, the need for collaborative approaches that allow for both to be um, shaped in different ways. Recognizing that being shaped and transformed is not a bad thing um, and, and that it's natural that, that religions, of course, are going to transform and change and that humanitarian organizations and international organizations should also um, be transformed and changed by these encounters with one another, but that it requires being upfront about agendas on both sides and principles and assumptions and commitments. Um, and then a fourth point is, is one that I raised earlier, but that I, I think has come out in, in a lot of folks' remarks, is um, that religious literacy is not necessarily about understanding uh, what Islam is, or understanding what Buddhism is, or, or even simply understanding that Buddhism looks different in Sri Lanka versus Tibet. Um, and that Buddhism is internally diverse and so on. I think religious literacy when it comes to engagement by humanitarian actors is just as much about the, the posture, about how we engage with religion, that it is about, I, I don't expect humanitarian actors to be experts on, on any of these religious traditions or to be religious studies experts themselves. And so, um, and, and 
you know, to that point, a little bit of knowledge can be very dangerous if humanitarian experts start thinking that they are experts on, on Islam or Christianity because they've taken a, a two-week course on, on these things. So, so I think what's more important is, is helping some of these international actors um, to develop a posture where they can, one, be self-critical and self-reflective of some of the assumptions that they're bringing about what religion is um, and, and, and interrogate a little bit um, how they've been formed within cultural contexts that have, have shaped their understanding of religion and their approach to it. Um, but then also the, the means by which to ask questions and to communicate um, and to be curious in a respectful way with, with religious communities and religious traditions. And then a final thing I wanted to do, which is actually very much in keeping with, with um, what my two colleagues here did, was, was a little bit of a global reflection on, on the moment right now. And, and as has already been said, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a great deal of anxiety around the world, and there is this, um, this phenomenon right now of extremisms and parochialism and nationalisms that are, are flaring in, in different places or regionalisms or sectarianisms. Um, and, and those things that are fueling it and the anxieties, but the vehicles through which they're being expressed, including social media and so on, are also vehicles that we can be using to building this global solidarity movement, which I also see expressions of, um, but maybe not necessarily the outlets being levied in the way that they could in order to really foster some of that global solidarity movement. But I also think that, again, what, what religion can also bring to this moment I think is particularly important because I see in a lot of the places where I work that people are turning to religion as things crumble around them in some ways, as there's, there is the nation state is you know, under threat in some ways right now, whether it's going to continue to prevail. It's certainly not going to continue to prevail as it did in the past. The global order as a result is somebody, I forget who said it now, but the, uh, Aza did, that the international system and international organizations are under threat and crumbling and are, are vulnerable in a way right now because the very nature of the nation state is being questioned and shifting. Um, and so as, as some of these seismic shifts are happening within the world right now, I do see the uh, people turning to religion um, in a new way and for, um, for different reasons, and, 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 but in large part for, for a desire for, for a foundation um, at this moment. And so again, this, this is an opportunity and a need to which we must be responsive as people of faith, but also as humanitarian workers, that there is, there is this turning towards um, religion, but also the faith and the spirituality behind religion that helps people um, persist in a time of great change and anxiety. Um, and it's, you know, as much as a threat and as it's manifested in some way as it is an opportunity in being able to build global solidarity and being able to revitalize commitments to um, values such as coexistence and to neighborliness and, and helping others and so on. Well, I, uh, we didn't plan it this way, but I um, was happy to realize that Susie Hayward would be our last speaker because I knew she would leave us with a, with a vision of hope, as she does so often and so much of her work. Um, we, I, and I want to just apologize. We, we did intend to have more time for, uh, to hear from you all, and I, and I am sorry for that. I also want to just say that it's really important for us to 
honor the time because I know some people are both. Um, it's been a long day, and also we people need to go catch planes, and many of us are getting ready to to, to move south for for the weekend. So um, I just I want to say. Uh, Three, if you'll indulge me, three, three really important thank yous. I want to repeat my thank yous to. I can't say this enough. The people behind the scenes, Lauren, uh, Lauren and Sarah Ben, are just stunningly phenomenal people as human beings. They're they're very very smart. They could be up here involved in these conversations, and at and at different points they have been very part important people to help us shape these ideas. But um, they have really done the Herculean job of organizing all these things. And I just want to say, please, can we thank them again? Our um, tech people, our wonderful caterers also, again, who feed us well and who have made this a, a possible for us. Thank you so much for, for your uh, help with us today and to be able to both tape this. It will be available. It wasn't just live stream. This will be available online shortly so people can access it if you're interested. Our donors, of course, the Henry Luce Foundation uh, and Bruce McGavar for their support. We cannot do this work without uh, incredible support of individuals and, and foundations. And then finally, um, I, well, no, not finally, I want to thank our incredible panelists, um, the people who have taken time out of incredibly busy lives to come here to engage in person, to help us think together, to do that collaboration I spoke about earlier, the importance of that moment of coming together, open-hearted, recognizing both our strengths and what we hope we offer, but also our humility. And I, I just, this has been just the most incredibly enriching two days for me, and even though I am completely exhausted. I don't know about the rest of you, but um, I just want to say thank you to all of you for, for taking the time to be here. So if we could give our panelists a, a, a round of thank you. Um, and then finally, I, I want to thank again <clears throat> my Oxfam colleagues because this again has been such an incredible uh, professional and personal uh, journey that we're on. I also feel like this is the place, the nexus of these two organizations, Harvard Divinity School and Oxfam, not as the only place but as a place for us to think what does it mean to truly partner now across these two different kinds of institutions in deep collaboration. And I feel like we have vehicles um, and foundations in place now, thanks to your generosity, to actually take what we've learned here and, and move forward with, again, the hope that this won't be the only thing that happens. I hope all of us here and those of us who've been parts of panels will participate in generating your own ways to, to make manifest with the ideas that we've uh, discussed here. But, but I'm especially so deeply grateful and excited about, uh, about the next step. So thank you, Oxfam, and thank you, all of you who uh, were with us throughout this conversation, our online friends. Um, and again, I hope we all keep this conversation moving and going, and please let's keep in touch, because that's really the other piece, the networking and uh, connection piece. So thank you all. Thank you.